So uh, I'm told that when I was a young lad of maybe the age of two or so, that I would observe my mom taking uh, empty cereal boxes out of the cabinet. Um, well, I guess not out of the cabinet. She probably already had them out of the cabinet. Once she, they were empty, she would take them and stomp on them, crush them to throw them away in the recycling bin so they would fit. And me being a two-year-old, wanting to imitate my mom, would take out full boxes of cereal and stomp them underneath my feet. Um, this is what happens when you are not mature. Hopefully, I've matured some since then. Hopefully, I've done a little growing up. I'm often told that I'm a child trapped in an adult's body, um, but I still ho I, I, at this point, I'm not stepping on full boxes of cereal anymore. I'm waiting until they're at least half empty, and then I go to town. But uh, we're in a series called Growing Pains, where we're talking about growing up. We're talking about becoming more mature. And here's what I bet we all agree about uh, a maturity. Your life would be better if the people around you were more mature, right? If they would just take some responsibility, if they would be a little less ignorant, if they would take some time to do some research, your life would be a whole lot better. But here's what's just as true, but a lot harder to admit, that the lives of the people around you would be a lot better if you were more mature. In fact, your life would be a whole lot better if you were more mature. And until we are all perfect, which we are not, we all have some more growing up to do. Um, so that's what we're focusing. That's why we're talking about uh, growing up. That's why we're talking about growing pains uh, during this series. And um, the truth is it's kind of hard to know how much growing up you have to do, how much more mature you need to be, until you have someone that you know that is mature to look at and, and serve as the standard of maturity. Now, I think a lot of uh, people, whether Christians or not, would look at Jesus Christ and say, yeah, that's a mature human being. Um, what Christians would say, they'd take it a step farther and they'd say, yeah, actually, he's not just mature, he's a perfect human being. He was a perfect human being. He was God, and he had a human nature as well, and he was perfect. And so if we want a standard of what perfect maturity looks like, we can look to Jesus Christ uh, for that standard. In the book of Hebrews, which is a letter in the New Testament of the Bible that was written to churches in the first century, um, this is what the author writes about Jesus. He says, for we do not, we don't have a high priest. When he says high priest, he's talking about Jesus. We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, for starters, this is really comforting because um, all those times that you've been, that you found yourself in a situation with a whole lot of pain where you were extremely tempted to do something you know you should not do or extremely tempted to not do something that you know that you should do. Um, when you are in those situations, Jesus knows what's that, what that is like. And because he knows what that is like, he does not approach you when you are in those situations with an attitude of heartlessness, but rather an attitude of empathy. And what's so amazing is that even though Jesus was in those places, he did not give in to those temptations. He did not sin. He was a perfect human being. So if we want a standard of maturity, if we want to know what the standard of maturity is, we can look to Jesus Christ to understand what it is. Um, now, when you compare yourself 
to that standard of maturity, I think we can all see we have a lot of growing up to do. We have grown up. We're more mature than we were, but we're not mature as we could be. We could grow up more, and our lives would be better if we were more mature, and the lives of the people around us would be better as well if we were more mature, if we were more grown up, if we were more like Jesus. So what I want to do today is look at Jesus and understand— some of the uh, markers of maturity that we can learn from observing how he lived, since he is the perfect person, since he does have perfect maturity, and talk about something we can do to make ourselves more mature like Jesus. So one of the things that we find just from this verse we just read that's true about maturity is that maturity includes self-control. Maturity includes self-control. Jesus faced all these situations with incredible temptation, yet he was able to control himself. He was able to choose to do the right thing even when it was difficult. He was able to choose—people who are mature, they choose to do the right thing uh, even when when it's difficult. They choose to do what is wise and what is morally correct— even when they're tempted not to. They choose to uh, uh, not avoid doing the right thing and the wise thing, even when there's a much easier and uh, pleasurable option in the moment. That's what mature people do. Mature people say no. They say no to those desires that they know are not best for them and best for the people around them. So, how is, your, how is your self-control? How is your self-control when you feel hungry? How is your self-control when you feel hangry? How is your self-control when you feel tired? Compare it to Jesus Christ. And we can all see that we have a ways to go. And I think we all would like more self-control. We'd like it just to be magic to us so that we could not do the things or not want to do the things uh, that we know we should not do. But it's difficult. But nonetheless, maturity includes self-control. So uh, what else can we learn uh, by observing Jesus about what maturity includes? Well, I want to look at a a point in time in Jesus' life where someone said they wanted to follow him. This is in Matthew chapter 8. Then a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man... He has no place to lay his head. This is important, an important aspect of the life of Jesus, that Jesus had no house. Jesus had no home. What Jesus owned was the clothes on his back. Now, the point that I'm bringing, uh, that I'm making here, is not to say that in order to be mature, you have to own nothing but your clothes. Uh, I I do believe that Christians should be known for their unparalleled generosity. That's all an area we can grow in. Um, but, I, uh, but I do believe that money can be used uh, for, for great things, to overcome problems. I mean, you guys together have raised like $200,000 over the past five years, almost $200,000 to fight the global water crisis. But what's amazing about Jesus, that he had no home, um, that he had only his clothes, is it shows this, that Money had no power over Jesus. Jesus did not worry whether or not he was going to have enough money. Jesus did not base his self-worth on what was in his bank account. Jesus did not compare how much money he had to how much money other people had. Jesus did not have a spending 
problem. Jesus was not worried about money. Money had no power over Jesus. So what we see is maturity includes freedom from the power of money. I mean, imagine how powerful you could be. Imagine how more free you would be, how much worry-free you would be if you were like Jesus in this respect, that you had freedom from the power of money. So what else can we learn from the life of Jesus um, about maturity? Well, one thing that was really cool about Jesus, he knew when to speak out, and he knew when to be quiet. Jesus knew when to tell someone what they were doing was wrong. And Jesus, he didn't, he didn't pull his punches. He was tough on sin. He was willing to speak the truth. And because he did this, in the end, he was killed for it. Um, he was not afraid to speak the truth. But he also knew when to hold his tongue. He knew when to be silent. And so I want to look at uh, the most... Uh, powerful illustration of when he did this. It was uh, at the end of his life when he was on trial before uh, the Jewish leaders and uh, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. This is where uh, Matthew picks up in that story. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders, the, the Jewish religious leaders, made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all the charges they're bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now think for a moment, how do you respond usually when somebody makes an accusation against you that is not true? Now how do you respond when someone makes an accusation against you that is true? Do you, would you have the self-control in that situation to say nothing? This required incredible self-control. And I'm not saying the right thing in, the, in that situation when someone accuses you of something, doing something right or wrong is always to remain silent. You know, probably in most uh, examples, uh, it's, it's probably not the right thing uh, to do. It's probably good to have a conversation. But what we see here, one, another example of where Jesus shows incredible self-control, but we also see Jesus's incredible wisdom. We see that maturity includes wisdom. Why was it so uh, wise for him to remain silent here, but at other times? Well, from, from the perspective of someone who's familiar with the Bible, um, it, it's, it's pretty obvious. But certainly to people in Jesus's time, they had no window into the insight that he had at that moment of why he should remain silent. Everyone was scratching their heads. Jesus, why aren't you, why aren't you saying something? I mean, Pilate himself, he didn't want Jesus to be crucified. He was trying to find other opportunities to get Jesus off the hook. He thought this was an innocent guy. He didn't get it. But Jesus, all, all he would have had to do was just speak up and say, hey, these witnesses, you know, and point out how, how the witnesses were getting all their stories. Uh, they, they weren't working together. The stories weren't working together. And how their stories were lies. Jesus, Pilate was looking for an opportunity for, looking, for letting Jesus off the hook. But Jesus, he remained silent. Why would he do that? Because Jesus understood that giving his life as a sacrifice for other people, as a punishment for other people's sin was what would allow other people to spend forever, forever with him and his heavenly father and the Holy Spirit forever. He knew this was the way, this was the only way to pay for people's sin. And so he was willing to let himself be wrongfully accused 
and killed for, for doing nothing wrong because he was wise. And he did it because he had self-control. And not only did this show a blend of self-control and wisdom, it also showed love. Jesus loves you. He wants to spend forever with you. That's why he was willing to allow this to happen. That's why he was willing to die. He says there's no greater, Jesus said there's no greater love than this, someone who lays down their life for their friend. He was showing love for you. Maturity requires self-control and freedom from the power of money and wisdom and love and peace. And wouldn't your life be better? If you had more self-control and you had more freedom from the power of money and you had more wisdom, if you were better at knowing when was the right time to speak up, when was the right time to not speak, what was the right way to say something, when was the, the right and wrong place to say something, wouldn't your life be better with more love in it? And finally, Jesus, um, one of the— and there's so many things we could talk about uh, that, that are markers of maturity in the life of Jesus. This is just a fraction of them. Uh, peace— peace. Jesus was someone with, with peace. When you see someone who in the midst of a world that's on fire is able to think rationally and be calm and not lose their mind and have a sense of peace, you see a person who is mature. And Jesus was full of peace. He had so much peace that he gave it to other people. Um, Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was killed, he said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Apostle Paul recognized how much peace came from Jesus when he wrote to uh, Jesus' followers in Colossae in his letter to the Colossians. He wrote, um, And let the peace of Christ, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. In the Old Testament, there was a prophecy about a savior that God would send to his people. And it was said that he would be referred to as the prince of peace. And people still call Jesus the prince of peace to this day because of the peace that he has and because of the peace that he gives to other people. The Apostle Paul also wrote to uh, his followers, or to Jesus' followers. He said to them, he talked about Jesus' peace as peace that exceeds understanding. It's beyond your ability to understand how great the peace of Jesus Christ that he can put in your life is, and the peace that he has inside Himself. There is no chemical high. There is no sexual satisfaction. There is no financial security that even comes close to the peace that Jesus Christ provides you with. Jesus was someone who had peace. So, our lives would be a lot better with all those things in it. But what do we do? How do we get those things? How do we be more like Jesus? Well, we're going to take a look at um, a uh, real quick look at a instance in the life of Jesus's two, two, two of his closest followers, Peter and John. And this is after Jesus's ministry on earth, and he sent his disciples out to go um, and tell people about him and um, do miraculous works. And so they're walking up to uh, the temple one day, and they see this guy out by the temple gate, and this guy 
he hasn't been able to walk since birth. And the guy's like, yo, can I have some money? And they're like, dude, we don't got no money. But how would you like to walk? And the guy's like, that sounds even better. So they're like, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The guy stands up. He's able to walk. As you can imagine, people are going crazy over what they just saw. So word reaches the religious leaders, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the same guys who had Jesus killed. Okay, these are some scary guys if you're going around preaching about Jesus. And so these guys come up to Peter and John and they start questioning him. And we're going to pick up here in the book of Acts um, where they question them. This is what the religious leaders say. By what power or what name did you do this? Now remember, how they answer could determine their fate right here. These are some dangerous people. They just had Jesus killed. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Imagine them saying that to these people. Whom you crucified, but God raised him from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and then he quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament, from a psalm in the Old Testament. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when these re religious leaders, when these authorities saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished, and this is huge, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus. Where did this knowledge they had come from? Where did this courage that Peter and John have come from? They didn't get it from school. They were just ordinary people. They didn't train super hard for forever and ever at some university. They didn't read a bunch of books. They took note these men had been with Jesus. They got it from spending time with Jesus. Listen, if you want to be like Jesus, be with Jesus. Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus, be with Jesus. If you want to be more mature, be with Jesus. If you want to have more peace in your life, be with Jesus. If you want to have more love and self-control and freedom from money and courage and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, be with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. It's being around him that makes that happen. You want to be like Jesus, be with Jesus. Now, why, why is that? Why does being around Jesus make you like Jesus? Well, it's kind of hard to admit, but the truth is, as human beings, we're a lot more easily influenced by factors that are surrounding us than we would like to admit. In his book, Blink, Malcolm Gladwell writes about an experiment that was done on two different groups of students, and they were given tests. And uh, there was 10 problems on each test, 
and um, each of the problems had some words in a random order. It could be something like this. Be, will, sweat, bold, they. And the goal for each problem was just to make a sentence out of those words. So they will be bold could be one of the sentences. Um, and that would be a correct answer. But the two different groups were given uh, different sets of problems. One group had words like aggressively, bother, disturb, angry, rude, sprinkled out throughout the problems. The other group uh, had words like kind and respect, polite, considerate, and patiently sprinkled throughout their problem. Now, when they were finished with their test, 